Welcome to chapter four of The Basics. Once again, I'm Pastor Mike, lead speaker for Time of Grace Ministry. And I'm assuming you're here at chapter four because you've already listened to and been intrigued by chapters one, two, and three. If by chance you haven't listened to all those chapters, I'm gonna encourage you to push pause, go back, listen to one, two, and three, so that we can jump in on the same page here on chapter four. Hey, speaking of the basics, you can download a free copy of this book in its entirety. Just go to timeofgrace.org backslash the basics. Chapter four, Jesus. If you don't think Jesus is a big deal, just check the date on your calendar. The year listed is a subtle reference back to Jesus, to the approximate time that he lived, died, and, as we're about to discuss, came back to life. However, these are far more than interesting historical moments. They are the only way for God and you to get back together. I'm not sure how much you know about Jesus of Nazareth. Perhaps you know he was a first century religious leader who launched one of the largest movements in world history, what we today call Christianity. You might have heard some of his quotes about turning the other cheek or going the extra mile. If you have some church experience, you might even know his mother's name, Mary, his birthplace, Bethlehem, and the way that he died on a cross. But who exactly was Jesus? And what was the purpose of his life? You can read the entire history in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four biographies about the life of Jesus that are in the Bible, but let me give you a summary of what Jesus' life is all about. Let's start with his birth, let's discuss his life, let's move to his death, and let's conclude with his resurrection. Jesus' birth. The first witnesses of the birth of Jesus were blue-collar, third-shift shepherds who probably hadn't showered in weeks. It's a good thing you can't smell them, but you can read about them in the Bible. Luke chapter 2 tells us, It was an otherwise average night of staring at sheep when a messenger came with this breaking news. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And a baby in a manger was exactly what they found. A few miles south of Jerusalem, in the little town of Bethlehem, also known as the town of David, a poor woman named Mary pushed out her firstborn, a son. Her fiancé, a carpenter named Joseph, was at her side. The Bible doesn't say exactly what Joseph did or said on that night, but I picture him as wide-eyed and helpless as a deer frozen by oncoming headlights. What mattered most, however, wasn't Joseph or Mary, but that baby lying in a manger. His name? Jesus. He was, in thousands of respects, like you at your birth. Small, helpless, seven-ish pounds of skin, bones, and developing brain. He cried, he needed to be changed, and he cost Mary more than a few nights of good sleep. Jesus was, as some Christians would later put it, true man. But in other ways, Jesus was not at all like you. Remember what the messenger said to those shepherds? A Savior has been born, the Messiah, the Lord. A Savior is someone who saves, 
that is, someone who rescues another person from danger. As we would come to find out, Jesus would rescue people like us from the danger of not being good enough for God. While he would certainly become famous as a good teacher, a powerful healer, and an influential leader, the first title on his resume was Savior. God in heaven sent Jesus to meet the greatest need of humankind to be saved from the sins that we could not undo, the very sins that separate us from God. The next title that the messengers used was Messiah. Messiah is a fancy word that comes from Hebrew, and it essentially means the one. The word Christ means the exact same thing in the Greek language, which is why some people call Jesus the Messiah and others just call him Jesus Christ. But what does that phrase, the one, actually imply? Jesus was the one whom God had been promising to send ever since humanity stopped being good. The Old Testament, all the books of the Bible that came before the birth of Jesus, made dozens, if not hundreds, of promises about this Messiah, including where he would be from, what he would do, and how he would restore the broken relationship between sinful people and a sinless God. In other words, the baby in the manger was God's chosen one, the only one who could save people from their spiritual dilemma. Finally, according to the messengers at his birth, Jesus was called the Lord. (laughs) What a claim! The baby Jesus, so frail he couldn't even flip himself over onto his tummy, was also called the Lord. He is somehow God. This is why one of Jesus' nicknames in the Bible was Emmanuel, a Hebrew word that means God with us. (laughs) If your brain hurts a little bit right now, that's okay. (laughs) There is no one else like Jesus whom you can compare Jesus to. You and I have met plenty of humans, and perhaps we've prayed to the invisible God of heaven, but we have never seen God with us in a body in human flesh. But that's exactly what Jesus was. One of the earliest recorded songs about Jesus was already being quoted in the mid-first century, just years after his birth. The lyrics of this song poetically said this about him. Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, Jesus made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That song is saying that Jesus was God, yet he was made in human likeness. Jesus was God and man in one person. Jesus was the God-man. It makes you wonder. If the God who hates sin and loves love came to this earth, what would he do? What would he do to people like us? Thankfully, we have the answers to those very questions. Let's talk about Jesus' life. If I had to summarize the life of Jesus in just one word, I would choose the word unexpected. You might not expect Jesus to spend the first 30 years of his life in a backwoods village in northern Israel, but that's exactly what he did, spending almost 90% of his life on earth in a little town called Nazareth. You might not expect Jesus to invest his childhood, his teenage years, and his 20s working as a carpenter and being a good neighbor, but that's exactly what he did. 
not beginning his work of teaching about spiritual things until he was about 30 years old. You might not expect Jesus to hang out with questionable characters like prostitutes and divorcees, adulterers and sinners, but that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus of Nazareth said unexpected things. He went to unexpected places and he surrounded himself with unexpected people. But as God among us, the one expected thing he did was to love people. If you've ever heard of a church named St. Matthew's or St. Peter's or St. Mary's, that's because Jesus loves sketchy people like Matthew, Peter, and Mary. Matthew, if you read the Bible, was a former tax collector, which was a scandalous job in first century Israel that involved working for the enemy, the Romans, and squeezing money out of your own people for personal gain. Matthew was a sinner. Peter was a fisherman who had foot-in-mouth syndrome and a tendency to let his anger and emotions get the best of him. Peter was a sinner. Mary Magdalene, one of the many Marys in the Bible, was in a dark spiritual place when Jesus met her, yet he still invited her to follow him. She was a sinner, and yet she became one of his closest friends. These stories are proof that Jesus loved the unlovable. But don't think of him as a pushover. Jesus was fiercely protective of children and he confronted sin boldly. He proved it by his willingness to call out publicly his own friends, church leaders, and local pastors who weren't being as good and loving as they should. To be honest, when you read everything the Bible says about Jesus' life, it's hard to put him in anyone's corner. He sacrificed constantly to care for the poor Yet his standards for marriage and sexuality were very traditional. In one breath, he would tell the crowds they needed to live under the spiritual authority of the church. But in the next breath, he would blast the hypocrisy of the leaders of the church. In one message, he spoke of loving your enemies and refusing to judge others. But in another message, he insisted on the existence of hell and the need for every person to be saved from their own bad behavior. I struggle to find the words to summarize the life of Jesus because Jesus lived such an unexpected life, a surprising life, a life unlike any other that has ever been lived. But I can say that through all his years on earth, there's one thing that Jesus always was good. In all of his words, in all of his works, Jesus never once fell short of the standard of good. He never sinned. He never did a single thing to cause his Father in heaven to turn his face away or to keep his distance from him. Even Jesus' enemies couldn't accuse him with credibility. Once, at the end of his life, they dragged him into court and demanded the death sentence, but the judge cried out, Why? What crime has he committed? The answer was none. Because Jesus was good. Because Jesus was God. It turns out that the goodness of Jesus is really good news for people like us, especially if you understand what happened when Jesus died. Jesus' death. In the late 1800s in Japan, a man named Sokichi murdered his employer's son during the course of a robbery. He was caught, condemned, and sentenced to death on a cross where a picture was taken of the execution. 
unless you have a weak stomach, I'd encourage you to search for Sokichi Cross and see with your own eyes the kind of death that Jesus died. While we are used to seeing crosses in churches and fashion and on jewelry, in Jesus' day, the cross caused people to shudder. The Roman Empire had perfected the pain of the cross, and they devised a way to make victims suffer as much as possible and as long as possible. By nailing men to an upright piece of wood, gravity would make every breath an excruciating experience. It forced victims to choose between the pain of suffocation or the pain of pushing themselves up on the nails hammered next to their very nerves. That description should make you shake your head at the thought of the cross's most famous victim of all, Jesus. If Jesus was God with us, and if Jesus was entirely good, why would he, of all people, die on a cross? Now, the Bible has two answers to that question, the earthly answer and the spiritual answer. The earthly answer, which you can read throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that the religious leaders of Jesus' day felt threatened. They hated how Jesus called them out publicly for their bad behavior, like their pride. They despised how many people hung on Jesus' every word, their jealousy. And they were terrified that the Romans would punish all the Jews in Israel when they dispersed the mob that was following Jesus. That was their fear. That's why the religious leaders eventually found a way to arrest Jesus secretly, condemn him on false charges, and pressure the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, to put Jesus on a cross. Why was Jesus on a cross? The earthly answer is because of them. The insecure priests and leaders of the people, the unjust governor, the betrayer from Jesus' own inner circle. That's the earthly answer. But the spiritual answer that the Bible gives is not them, it's you. It's us. Jesus Christ died on a cross because of you. If it wasn't for you and me, Jesus would not have been on a cross. God would not have been anywhere close to there. But because of us, that is exactly what happened. The human problem that has existed ever since the fall has put every man, woman, and child in serious spiritual danger because none of us are able to not sin for very long or undo the sins that we've done in the past. That's why Jesus was hanging there. Jesus died for us. That thought, in one sense, should destroy you. Search for Sokichi's picture again and then try to picture the God of perfect love on a cross. Think of your impatience as I think of my lack of kindness. Think that we did that to Jesus. It's unthinkable. Causing pain to another human being is enough to haunt you. Imagine causing the pain of the cross to the only one who has been constantly good to you. But the Bible spends more time talking about the cross as good news, not just convicting news. In fact, the Bible says the cross is the best news in all of human history. Because right there, as Jesus hung on the cross, God was saving us. He was dealing with our sins. He was taking care of your every thought and word and action that would prevent you from being good enough to be with God. 
Let's slow down just a little bit and think deeply about what each of the following Bible passages tell us about the cross of Jesus. The Apostle Paul wrote this, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And there's a lot packed into that passage, but pick up on that line. He made peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do we have to be separated from God? No. <laughs> through Jesus, this passage claims, we can be reconciled. The, the relationship can be fixed. There can be peace through the blood that Jesus shed on that day when he hung on a cross. A few verses later, the Apostle Paul added this. God forgave us all of our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, God has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What did God do with your sins? He forgave them. How many of them? <laughs> According to this passage, all of them. But what about all the charges that God could bring against you in his spiritual court? This passage says he canceled them. And how did he do it? By nailing them to the cross. One last passage, this time from Jesus' friend Peter. Peter wrote, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By Jesus' wounds, you have been healed. How do you heal the relationship between you and God? Peter says, by Jesus' wounds. Why doesn't your separating sin get in the way of God being close to you? Because, Peter says, Jesus himself bore our sins. This is why the cross is the cure. It is such good news. And I'm so tempted to turn this little book into a novel because the cross means everything. If Jesus had just been a good guy who said some good things about how to follow God, you, you and I would be stuck with the same problem, sin. In fact, if Jesus had been God with us but had only given orders on what to do and what not to do and how to live, you and I would still be in grave danger. But thank God, Jesus is so much more than that. Jesus is the God who came down from heaven to save, to rescue you from danger. Or, if you remember, the shepherds first heard it this way, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Yeah, last week, I heard the true story of some followers of Jesus who lived in Somalia, a place where believing in Jesus can cost you everything. In one particular village, secret gatherings are he held where Christians read and remember the glorious truth that God is with them because of what Jesus has done for them. When the sun sets, one of the Christians sneaks out of the village and finds a nearby cave where a Bible is hidden. He retrieves it, sneaks back home, where a small group of excited believers is waiting to read the story again, marveling at a God who would give up the safety of heaven and die on a cross for their sins. Now, once the study is over and before the sun rises, the same man tiptoes back to the cave, hides the Bible, and returns home knowing that being discovered by his neighbors will mean certain death. So why does he do it? Here's why. He knows the one who chose death 
in order to give him life with God. He knows that Jesus is worthy. He believes that Jesus is worth it. Now, Jesus says resurrection. Imagine if you had a really rich grandma who you really loved. After a long battle with cancer, grandma takes her last breath, and later that year, you find out that she has left you a shocking sum of money. How do you feel? Well, glad and sad. The money will help you, no doubt, but you really miss grandma. And this is why Jesus is better than your fictional millionaire granny. (laughs) Not only did Jesus give you an incredible gift at the cross, forgiveness, a chance to be with God and more, Jesus also showed up right after his own funeral. (laughs) That's right. The Bible says that Jesus actually rose from the dead. The Sunday after the Friday when Jesus died, some of his female friends went to grieve at his burial place an above-ground cave made out of solid rock. But when they entered, instead of finding their dead friend Jesus, they found a living messenger, just like the one who had appeared to the shepherds decades earlier. This messenger told them that Jesus was no longer dead. He was alive. He was breathing just as he had promised. Here's what the Bible says happened next. The women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. (laughs) Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Why did they worship Jesus? Because Jesus was God. And because having God with you is really good news. Easter, for many people, is a good excuse to take a day off work and eat an absurd amount of sugar. I'm all about a good nap and a chunk of dark chocolate, but the meaning of Easter is much more than that. Because of Easter, Jesus is alive, defeating even death itself. Because of Easter, death doesn't get the final word, but instead is just a pause between this life and seeing God face to face in the life to come. No wonder Jesus' followers, even today, love Easter Sunday. In fact, every Sunday is a chance for us to gather and remember the glorious things that Jesus did for us through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And you too can join in that joy. Your life might be filled with ups and downs, moral victories and sinful failures, good works and bad choices, but none of that needs to get in the way of you drawing near to God. If Jesus lived for you, died for you, and rose from the grave to prove to you that it's true, then there's hope for you, for me, for all of us. Here's how Jesus' friends put it in the Bible. If Jesus Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. This passage says that without Jesus, you are still in your sins. A phrase that means you can't escape the sins that separate you from God. But since Jesus was raised from the dead, the situation has changed. You are forgiven by the Savior who died and who rose for you. The Apostle Paul also wrote this. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, and he was raised to life for our justification. 
There's two parts to that passage. First, your sins were handed over to Jesus and he took them all to the cross. And then on the following Sunday, Jesus was raised to life for our justification. That's just a fancy Bible word. That means God doesn't condemn us anymore. We're free. Not imprisoned by guilt, shame, or condemnation. We are free to live with God now and forever. One last passage. The same Apostle Paul wrote, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. He's saying that nothing in your life, nothing now, nothing back then, nothing in the future can stop God from loving you. Oh, this is the power of Jesus. He takes away every last one of your sins and presents you as a good person, good enough to make God smile when he sees you. And when your last breath comes, there will be nothing to make God angry with you since Jesus has taken care of every offensive thing you have ever done. Just imagine it. A God who likes you. A God who's with you. A God who listens to you. A God who has plans for you. A God who will never abandon you. A God who will always accept you. A God who forgives you. A God who will heal you. A God who will deliver you from your pain. A God who will welcome you with open arms. None of those sentences could be true without Jesus. But with Jesus, they can be true. In fact, they are absolutely true for everyone who has faith. So, let's dig into the meaning of that essential word, faith. Hey, thanks for listening. If you're finding this podcast helpful in your walk of faith, will you consider sharing it? Um, You probably know that word of mouth is one of the best ways that we can help other people connect to God, the basics, and really beyond the basics of the Christian faith. So, help people grasp the height, the width, the depth, the beauty, the worthiness of our Savior Jesus Christ by sharing this with someone that you know. Thanks, and have a great day.